The Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Listen for the word of the Lord. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying, God, I thank you I'm not like the other people, those thieves and rogues and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all of my income. But the tax collector, standing far off too, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this, this man... He went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jason, I need that gun in about 16 minutes, okay? It's about 16 minutes. There was a preacher who found a shoebox in the closet, and he opened it and... Inside, he found some strange contents. Inside was an egg carton with five eggs in the carton. And next to the eggs was a stack of, of money, of bills, and it totaled $10,000, five eggs and $10,000. And as soon as his wife uh, walked through the door, he stopped her and asked her if she knew anything about this odd combination of five eggs and $10,000, uh, to which she said, yes, dear. After we got married, I decided that after every sermon you preached, if it was a bad one, I'd put an egg in the shoebox. Preacher puffed up with pride a little bit and thought after 30 years there's only five eggs in the box. What about the $10,000, honey? Oh, well, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them off, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you need me this afternoon, I'll be pillaging shoeboxes in Susan's closet <laughs> looking for eggs and cash. How quickly a five-egg preacher can be humbled. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. That's the dualism of today's reading. It's, it's our human condition at any given moment, pride and humility. We wrestle with it all of the time. Uh, those two words, uh, they, they sound, pride and humility sound so different uh, in their origin, however, they're pretty similar. Hubris, that being pride and hummus or humus of the earth from which we get the word humility. Hubris is it's outrage, it's violence, it's self-aggrandizement, it's turning inward on itself. Hummus of the earth, of the dirt. It's serving others. It's an outward focus. It's self-abandonment. It's lowliness. Hubris is of the world. Hummus is of the earth. I hope you hear the difference, right? C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity that uh, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. All of these other things are mere flea bites, as he said. Uh, pride, 
C.S. Lewis said, is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love. It eats up the possibility of contentment. And pride eats up the possibility of using common sense. Augustine and Aquinas called pride the root of all other sin. And, and we can trace that. We can look at any other sin, any other obstacle that stands in the way of us and God and us and our neighbor, and it's traceable to the sin of pride because it's always about us. It's about self. Humility is the antidote to pride. Whereas pride turns inwardly, humility begins looking outwardly at the needs of others around us. Humility is like Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. It's like leaving his throne to come to, to earth, not to usher in uh, a military kingdom, but the kind of kingdom that relies on washing the feet of your friends. Humility is saying, Lord, let me decrease so that Christ might increase. C.S. Lewis also wrote about humility. He said, a really humble person will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all, actually. How do you know humility when you see it? If someone, you know, if you go to a corporate conference and you have the, hi, my name is badge on, you know, and like maybe one distinguishing mark underneath it. I've never seen somebody say, hi, my name is, is Jay, and I'm proud to be humble. <laughs> you don't say that, right? Or like the country song, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. You've heard that country song, right? All right. I love the children's minute. They had a 50-50 shot, you know, which one's humble, which one's prideful, you know, yeah, okay, it's that one. How do you know humility when you see it? I tend to think it's, it's observed in people who listen more and talk less, people who choose peace over having to be right. Humble people take time to say or to write a word of thank you. Humble people operate from a place of abundance rather than a place of, of scarcity. And they don't say, I don't have enough, I wish I had more. They say, I have exactly what I need. God has provided all that I need. Humble people use the words you and them in sentences much more than the pronoun I. Pride and humility. It's that age-old battle. There's tracks. They, they come together and they collide and, and our lives are like that. Pride and humility just constantly smashing into one another. Life has this way of, of making us kind of think dualistically along those lines. We, we are trained, we're programmed either by society or by, I don't know, just our own DNA to think we're either this or we're that, right? We are either rich or poor, Republican, Democrat, saved or lost, Ford, Chevy, Starbucks, <laughs> what's the other one? Dunkin' Donuts, yeah. Which are you, you know? It was targeting, uh, it was a clean hit. You know, we're one of the two, well, you know. Life has a way of doing that. 
Um, there's a Presbyterian minister whose work I found on this text, Aaron uh, Eichstadt, and he talks about writers and, and thinkers and humorists who say that there's one of two different types of people in this world. And he tells the story of his college chaplain who said, some people get up every morning and say, good morning, God. Others get up and say, good God, it's morning again, <laughs> you know. A Dear Abby column once said that there's two different types of people in this world. One who enters the room and says, there you are. The other enters the room and says, here I am. Pride, humility. Mr. Samuel Langhorn Clemens was fond of speaking in such dualities as well. He said there are two types of speakers, those who are nervous and those who are liars. I don't know what to do with that, right? But he went on to say, there's also those who accomplish things and those who claim to have accomplished things. And the first group is far less crowded. Isn't that good? We know this to be true. There are those who simplify life and complicate life. There's givers and takers. There's dividers. There's uniters. And then we get to this parable today. This is where I'm going with this. We get to the parable today, and Jesus says... Two men went up to the temple to pray. And two very different men. There's a Pharisee, there's a, a tax collector, they're publicly recognized, public officials. One's religious and known throughout the community. The other is more legal and known throughout the community. The Pharisee enters into church starts looking down his nose and says, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all these others. I fast two times a week. The requirement in the law was once a year on Yom Kippur. This guy does it twice per week? Check. I give a tenth of, of all of my income to the church, meaning I tithe. That's every preacher's dream for his or her flock is to have a tithing congregation. Check. He does all of that. He does all of that to the letter of the law. On the surface, he appears to be on top of the world versus this tax collector who's been skimming off the backs of his fellow community members, probably even his family, seems to be at the bottom of the world, weighed down by its gravitational pull. One is prideful. The other can't even raise his gaze to look up heavenward. And so with Luke, there's always this great reversal happening. That's what's happening here. Luke does that. This religious guy is painted as, as the villain. He's offering not really a prayer, more like talking out loud, saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all these other dirty, rotten people. And the one truly rotten person walks in and says the oldest prayer, one of the oldest prayers we have on record, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Reversals and undoings, it's classic biblical duality. And that pattern is, is familiar uh, depending on how we place ourselves in the biblical narrative beginning in, in Genesis. Are we Jacob? Are we Esau? Are we Cain? Are we Abel? Are we the younger brother? Are we the older brother? Are we Mary? Are we uh, Martha? Sitting at the Last Supper, are we Judas who will betray Jesus? Are we the beloved disciple on whom Jesus reclines? On Calvary, are we, hmm, are we the one that mocks Jesus? 
on one side saying, you saved others, save us and yourselves? Or are we the one who says, remember me when you come into your kingdom? To all of those questions, I say, yeah, <laughs> that is us at any given moment. And so I, I suppose Luke is asking us to choose which prayer it is we most identify with, the Pharisee or the tax collector. That's really complicated. It's really complicated because that sort of dualistic thinking, those dualities don't take into account their human experience, their stories. I, I feel sorry for both of them. I really do. And the more I've read this, I don't think they're moving further away from me. I think they're moving closer together. I think they have more in common than they do over which they, they disagree or, or they're unalike. Because I started wondering what that Pharisee is covering up that would cause him to be so pompous and to say such hurtful and mean things. You know, sometimes we have to build ourselves up. We do that by tearing other, other people down. It helps cover some things with which we are actually dealing in life. Why do we do that to one another? And then I started thinking about the tax collector and what, what he's really wrestling with. There was a, some, some sort of change, some sort of moment, that light that went off in him and said, I, I, I'm guilty. I can't keep cheating my people. I feel the weight of, of all of this on, on my shoulders. What am I supposed to, to do about this? And he starts pounding his, his breast, probably thinking in his mind, I, I'm so rotten, I'm so unlovable. How could God ever forgive me? You ever asked those words before? You ever wondered that about your relationship with God? One of the things that I think is, is happening is that there's a couple of things going on with this. One is, I think the Pharisee misconstrued his notion of what it means to be in right relationship with God and with other people whom he never even saw, to be honest. But I think he felt like if he'll just check all these boxes, and we just, we just gave the membership vows to, to three new members. We give them just about every week. Will you be loyal with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness, as if we do the praying and the being present and the giving? If we do more and more and more of that, we fool ourselves into thinking that we'll be some kind of super disciple. That's not how it works. That's not how grace works at all. Praying, tithing, being religiously observant, those are great disciplines. Giving proportionally in all of those ways are, are great disciplines. Lord knows we, need, we do need more of that, but this is not a plea to, to be present or to tithe or serve in order to be more humble or to get into God's good favor. Just the opposite. It's a reversal. I think what happens with this Pharisee is that his religious observance became a blinder and he couldn't see the people who really needed healing in his midst. Does that ever happen? We become blinded by religion. We become blinded by church. That we fail to see hurting people around us. Or we fail to allow ourselves to be seen by the, maybe the very ones who can help bring healing into our lives. This, this Pharisee was disconnected because he disconnected himself from the people God loves so dearly. He refused to see his connection with with other people within his community, much less to help them along their pathways of brokenness. I've also thought about this tax collector who can't even stand up. He's so wrapped up in shame. 
I thought about Paul. It's odd that uh, the text that uh, Audrey just read has Paul at the last moments of his life. He's had a major conversion, right? He used to persecute Christians. Now he's in prison all by himself. And he uses a lot of personal pronouns. So which is this, uh, hubris or hummus? <laughs> is it pride or humility? Paul's saying, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I'm saying I've poured myself out and in abandoning myself for the cause of Christ, I have found myself abandoned by everyone who who cares deeply about me. When we abandon ourselves for Christ, it might land us not on top in life, but, but in prison. Jesus abandoned himself. He left the throne of heaven and came down and he landed him on the cross. So there's some tension here. There's some tension because when we start getting near to the heart of God and the ways of Jesus... We learn that to love God is to love people and to love people is to love God and to serve God is to serve people and to serve people is to serve God. It's that simple. I love to fish, you know, rod and reel, open face. Bait casters, they get all messed up for some reason. I love to fish. I'm not good at it, not in the slightest, uh, because I try to set my hook entirely too quickly. I just do it all the time, you know, wham, and then the thing goes flying and you gotta duck, make sure it doesn't hit you in the head, right? You ever done that? I'm also fascinated by fishing lures. They come in different sizes and shapes. There's frogs and there's lizards and there's worms of all colors. Some are iridescent and they just kind of shimmer when they go across the, the water and some are about that deep and some sit on the bottom. Like I love a firetail worm. It'll bounce like that. It'll make a fish bite out of spike. And I love those topwater baits, you know. They dance across the lily pads and then when the whoop, one rises to catch it. But with all of those different fishing lures, the most important part of it is hidden in plain sight. It's the hook, right? And some of them are a little piece of plastic about two inches long, and they actually have two trebles. That's six hooks. You mess up that thing and get it wrong, and you're going to wear it home with you in your hand, right? It hurts. It hurts. And they have those barbs so that once they go in, man, they're not coming out easily. Fishing lures, parables remind me of one another because these stories of Jesus are so, I don't know, alluring, right? Fanciful. They draw us in and then all of a sudden, wham! Once we start nibbling on them, they, they hook us. So if there's a hook today, it's not the dualistic comparison between the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's, that's kind of too easy. Uh, Fred Craddock once wrote about this text that if the Pharisee is pictured as the villain and the tax collector as a hero, they each get what they deserve and the parable has been robbed. I think the hook is that they're more alike than they realize. Luke tells us they, they enter the temple, but they're both alone. They don't have anybody with them. I kind of feel sorry for him in that way. Pharisee only sees himself and, and his accomplishments. He never sees the other people he's objectifying. He fails to see them as his neighbor. He fails to, to be their neighbor. This tax collector, he enters, he enters alone. and he, Neither one see how deeply the other might be hurting they're both turned inwardly on themselves honestly and to be so close to be in church to be in the temple and to be so far away because 
we fail to see the one seated around us. Maybe that's the dance between pride and humility. So the hook is that they're both sinners who stand in need of God's grace. They're standing there together, not alone, and the irony is they don't see themselves that way. They only see themselves as opposites when actually they're brothers. Pride is often defined as sin being curved in on itself without a thought of God or, or neighbor. That's the moment that we put ourselves in God's place. We put ourselves on, on God's throne and, and we create this distance between ourselves and others and decide the fate of, of others when really we're just hooking and judging our, ourselves. The great reversal is this, that God's kingdom doesn't make sense. Those who are going to be at the great banquet are not the ones we think. When we think we've got a place, maybe we'll be absent. Jesus' parable is about the future. It's about the future smashed into the, the present day. He says the tax collector goes home justified, and we're left wondering, if that tax collector can do all those things, how wide is God's mercy and grace? It's bigger than we can comprehend. I think at the end of the day, people are people. Sometimes we keep it between the lines and sometimes we steer off course and, and make a mess, but that never ever changes the fact that there's a God who is always trying to write us and to auto-correct us. And we have brothers and sisters seated around us who are trying to help us find our, our best way forward and to get back on, on track. And no matter what we do, we are forever loved and we're continually called to love others. Albeit our pride, like the Pharisee, our guilt, like the tax collector, we sometimes cannot see the forest for the trees, and yet sometimes we need to see the individual trees in order to fully understand the forest. How can we see and hear one another if we're only listening to ourselves? If our hearts are full of our ways, they're not full of God's ways. I think that's why Paul had to pour out a little bit to make some more room for the way of Christ. So earlier this week, I'll finish with this story. I was praying this parable early one morning. And I asked God, show me a, a living model, a living version of, of humility, pride and humility. Give me, give me something, man. <laughs> show me what all this means. So I went to my closet and I, I put on a pretty swanky suit, patterned sport coat, really nice bow tie, the pants, the shoes, the works, because I had a breakfast I wanted to attend, and I wanted to represent, you know, the church and everybody real well and be the top of the game, and they ended up putting me at the very front table. <laughs> hmm. It was Makoa's 50 years of service breakfast. It'd been in Montgomery for 50 years. I heard Donna Marietta, she's the CEO, I heard her talk about Makoa and how they serve 428 meals per day. And to date, they've served over four and a half million meals to shut-ins in our community. <laughs> and then I had this voice in my head. Hey, Jay, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves for the sake of others will be exalted. They showed a video, and there was uh, one of our church members. He delivers meals each week for Meals on Wheels. 
And in that video, and then one of the other recipients of the weekly meals was there to give an in-person witness, they said, uh, they said a common thing. They said, when Meals on Wheels shows up and they get a knock, sometimes that's the only human interaction that a person will have that entire day. Think about that in your life. Sometimes just one delivery is so much more than a hot meal. It's a handshake. It's somebody to listen. It's somebody, somebody to, to give a hug. It's somebody to be present, to do a wellness check, to say, I care about you. I care about you, you having the nourishment that you need, but you need nourishment for your soul, so I'm here. And in the back of my head, when I'm hearing these stories and seeing our church member on that video, I'm sitting there thinking, that's humility. That's a servant's heart. To turn life outwardly, to see the needs of another human being. I came back to the church after the breakfast and in our fellowship hall were six or seven women. They had hairnets on and gloves. And do you know that they were preparing 200 meals that day for people in our community? And their humble service spoke to me, reminding me that everyone in our city deserves to be fed. We share that in common with one another. Breaking bread is holy, but who will do it? Who will humble themselves so that others can be exalted? You know, everyone wants to be seen. Everyone wants to be heard. We're all trying to get through life as best we can. And, and so maybe in that sense, there's just one kind of person. We all share something in common more than we're unalike, and that is we all need hope and healing. Every single person here today, worldwide, around this country, every single person needs hope and healing. That unites us. We're all in this thing together, as the song says, walking that line between faith and fear. Or as my, one of my favorite Mumford and Sons songs says, Keep the earth below my feet, for all my sweat and my blood runs weak. Let me learn... From where I have been, keep my eyes to serve and my hands to learn. Maybe we can be a little bit more earthy, closer to the ground, serving the people God loves. Let that be our prayer this week, that we would humble ourselves before God, that we might find healing and hope too. Amen.